The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Hello and welcome to Out in South London with me, Rosie Wilby, on Resonance 104.4 FM. We opened there with a track by Boogaloo Stew, who's going to be one of our guests next week. That is his new album, Magic Soul. That track is called The Book of Love. Now, I was very lucky on Saturday night. I got to go and see the wonderful play, Beautiful Thing, and I have the director, Nikolai Foster, on the phone. Hi, Nikolai. Hi, Rosie. How are you? I'm OK, thank you. Now, were you there? It was opening night on Saturday, wasn't it? Yeah, it was our first day of preview, so, so um, I'm really thrilled you saw it and enjoyed it. And our official press night, when we open kind of officially, is tomorrow, Wednesday. But oh, yeah, tomorrow. You, you came to see one of our previews, so I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed Oh, no, it was brilliant. Well, the audience obviously all enjoyed it because they gave a standing ovation at the end. I know, and it was. I think it was one of the most moving evenings I've had in a theatre where yeah. the, the audience seemed to stand up before the play had even finished when the two boys... Um, when, when, when they're Jake, dancing as, at the end. As, as Jamie offers Steve to dance with him, yeah. and as, as they kind of came together, everybody stood up, and it was kind of, you know, because we'd had quite a stressful, quite a long week, rehearsals, tech um, rehearsals, dress rehearsal, then into those kind of preview performances, and to get that kind of response at the end of that long week was just kind of mind-blowing, really, and to see <laughs> the effect, you know, the play still has on people, and how relevant and how it moves people still is just kind of mind-blowing and the, and the best possible end to the week really i know it's fantastic it's on at the arts theater um that's and um, you it's basically it's the 20th anniversary of the production isn't it so that's yeah. why this production now yeah. has come about yeah yeah so jonathan jonathan originally wrote the play and it was um first produced at the bush theater 20 years ago that's right um, and so then the, Obviously, it was a film, wasn't it? In about was that? Um, yeah, oh, that about was. 18 I years think ago? that was kind of a couple of years later. I guess yeah. about ninety six. About ninety six. I, I think so because I I saw it with my first proper girlfriend, so it uh-huh. definitely had uh, a lot of good memories for me. Yeah, and it's it's amazing because for me, it's a really kind of nice little personal story because mm. Hetty MacDonald, who directed the play at the Bush Theatre and, and directed then, the film, yeah, and directed the film. Yeah. My very first job which was an apprentice director up at the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield, she in, she was on the interview panel for that, um, you know, for me to get that job. So it feels for me ah. a kind of real, kind of full circle to have, you know, for Hetty to have given me one of my first jobs, but then also to be directing this play now in its 20th year. And I just feel indebted to her and obviously Jonathan, but knowing how Hetty would have shaped the play and helped, you mm-hmm. know, during those kind of precious moments of its development. So, you know, it's a really nice... Um, kind of little little uh, story there, I guess. Yeah, and how did you come to be involved with this production? How did that actually happen? Well, it's like a lot of kind of uh, theatre stuff. It's all just kind of weird fate and just kind yes. of stars aligning at the right point. <laughs> and I uh, was, I think it was about a year ago, I was doing a production of The Producers in Guildford and Tom O'Connell, our producers on Beautiful Thing, along, really enjoyed what I did and, you know, we met up, had a cup of tea, all that kind of stuff. And then we talked about various other projects. And then just out of the blue, one evening, Jonathan, uh, uh, Tom emailed and just said, look, you know, I've been speaking to Jonathan Harvey. Would you be interested in directing the 20th anniversary production of his play? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'd barely finished reading the email when I, you know, immediately emailed back and said, you know, I've happily cut off any number of my limbs to, to work <laughs> on this play. So 
that's kind of how it came about. You know, we'd met to talk about other projects. Yeah. And we hadn't really talked about Beautiful Thing just because uh, right. uh, Jonathan Harvey has made very clear that, you know, no more productions of the play. He wanted, you know, to give it a bit of a break, you know, because it, ah. it enjoyed so many productions. But because it's the 20th anniversary year, that's kind of how it's all it's all come up about yeah or it's really special i mean and it you know in some ways obviously some of the references feel dated but i think that didn't matter because the audience were so nostalgic and really enjoying those yeah. references and, and yeah. things like the costumes and the the cut-off shorts that um that saran that, jones that was wearing yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all of those yeah. kind of styling things but i think yeah. we all felt very very nostalgic for yeah and i think just like looking at kind of just how far the gay rights movement and has come over the last 20 years. And when you hear, you know, like at the end, Leah makes a joke and says, you know, um, you know, gay men all kind of never get married and dance backwards. Uh, And, you know, it's a very funny line. And hearing it with an audience, as we were doing for the first time on Saturday, you suddenly go, wow, things really have moved on and are still moving on. And, you know, there's still a way to go. But it's just really refreshing to hear those things and think, God, yeah, you know, when I was a teenager, when this play was written, yes, things we thought we really would never were get very different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And they were differently, and, and now they are changing. And how yeah. wonderful that, you know, that the play is still relevant and it's great mm. to look at it in a historical context or... You know, it still it still feels like a political play in in some ways, I guess. Well, definitely. I mean, I think in the program it says how it was in a way one of the first feel good gay stories. You know, where it's not yeah. a sort of tragic gay yeah. story. Yeah, I mean, you know, and also in many ways it, you could say it's not really. I mean, of course, it is a it is a gay play. It it deals with the gay experience, but it's it's not a kind of it's not making. The, the 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 fact that these two boys are gay the kind of central no. theme it really it's about two people falling in love and it just so happens in our play that it's two boys but mm-hmm. it's not some kind of you know normally even today when gay people are presented in soaps or in popular culture or literature it still feels like that has to be the agenda the yes. fact that they're gay and i think a, you know, a play where it just so happens they're gay and they fall in love and it has a happy ending and we believe they're going to move forward into the future, you know, with optimism and joy and all that kind of stuff. I think that's really refreshing and really, in, certainly in, 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 in play terms, that hasn't really been matched since this mm. play first, you know, was yeah. launched 20 years ago. I mean, there's a lot of points, aren't there, about things like the educa- education system and class. And, I mean, it made me think, in some ways, even though we have come forward so much, like you say, I think it would still be very difficult for two boys on that type of estate yeah, to come out, absolutely. don't you think? And we've, and we've talked a lot about that in rehearsals. Like Nancy, um, who is covering uh, Saran Jones, she covers Leah and um, Sandra. She's from yeah. Thamesmead, and she said, you know, this play, this story happening in Thamesmead today would be still as difficult, as complicated. Yeah. The two boys would still be met with as much prejudice, mm-hmm. um, you know, as they, as well, I mean, they don't necessarily meet massive prejudice in our play, but the fear is still there. And I think, yeah, yeah it's still, it, even though um, gay people and all the things we've kind of discussed have a much more the kind of visceral and visible presence in society. I think that we sometimes forget still how much prejudice, how much hatred, how much all of that kind of stuff is still going on under the surface. And in some ways it gets pushed more to the surface because we we have such, I guess, such a, a, vis- a visible presence. Mm. Um, and it's important, you know, to, 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 to remember that and that the play, mm. you know, 
still has, you know, I keep saying relevance, but yes, I, but think, I think that, that is yeah. important. Absolutely it is. Um, tell us a bit about the casting process, because I'm assuming you were involved with finding yeah, them. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, they're fabulous. How, how did that sort of all happen? Well, it's been an extraordinary journey, really. When we set out, um, you know, especially to find these two boys, I think we mm-hmm. were very keen. The play... You know, when it's been done before, it's often been kind of actors in their 20s who are very experienced and, you know, they're kind of playing at being teenage boys. And I think we wanted a kind of realism and truth that you can only really get by casting, you know, people of the right age. So, you know, I said to the casting director, let's go out there and let's find two young lads who we believe are working class boys from this part of London and who can who can create this world and the experience of these characters truthfully. Yes. And it's not that there's no acting required, but that, you know, we're really being honest and kind of maintaining the integrity in the writing. So we basically had a massive audition process, which I think went on for about three months. Mm. And we met Jake, who plays Jamie, very early in the process. And I remember him leaving the room and just, you know, just feeling that amazing sensation in your heart that you get as a director when you go, uh-huh. yeah, that's him, we've got him. And uh-huh. right. I remember leaving for lunch and he'd kind of toddled off down the road and uh-huh. me and the casting director, I mean, he doesn't know this, he'll probably think it's a bit weird if he hears this, but <laughs> he was kind of toddling off, you know, after his audition and we just kind of watched him and thought, yeah, there he goes, that's Jamie. Right. And then yeah. the, the journey to find Steve was a lot more complex and well, it just so Danny happened. Boy, who plays Steve, is actually, this is his debut, isn't it? His professional yeah, this debut. Is his, his, this is his, not only his Western theatre debut, not only his London play debut, but it's his debut as an actor. And wow. obviously, as a director, I, you know, it fills me with enormous pride to be able to give somebody so talented and, you know, such a beautiful actor as you saw this opportunity. And mm. I was actually working with Danny Boy in his um, drama school. We were doing Kiss of the Spider Woman. Oh, yeah. And... It was, it was all very complicated because Danny Boy is still officially in training, so he will be marked on Beautiful Thing. The um, the, the assessors will come and watch the play and kind of grade him. Wow, on, well, I think on, he'll on get a good grade. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was great that the college was so generous in wow. letting him audition for it. And then, Amazing. you know, we had a bit of complications at the beginning of rehearsals because he still had to go into classes and all that kind of stuff. But as I'm sure you agree, on Saturday it all kind of paid off. Mm. nicely so absolutely and of course saran jones plays sandra the wonderful yeah. mother yeah <laughs> jamie's yeah. mum <laughs> yeah um, she's, well yeah she um i met saran in manchester about i guess about six months ago and we you know we, we talked about the play and our ideas mm-hmm. for the character and obviously it was very much to see if we'd get on i guess because yeah. obviously leading action director need to work very closely together and yeah. we immediately hit it off and Great. Saran's just been incredible in rehearsal she's so intelligent so mm-hmm. insightful and she has you know she's not only aware of her own character's journey through the play but you know how the play looks from a directorial point of view and how she wants an audience to respond and so it's been a really exciting collaboration and I really feel like we've kept each other on our toes and it's been you know, it's been real hard work, but really fun, intelligent, challenging work. So, you know, again, thrilling to work with and, you know, seeing the effect she has on the audience with, you know, the the kind of interesting and original and unique way she's come at the character is really... Mm. You know, yes, I mean, she, 
Sorry, it's really on. interesting sort of seeing her different portrayal to uh, when I saw the film. Of course, it's Linda yeah. Henry, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, she was equally brilliant. Oh, e- amazing. And I wondered yeah. how someone else would interpret it. But, it, you know, it was, like you say, equally brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. And I think both actresses, both Linda Henry and Saran, have why they're so fantastic in this role is that they're not afraid to confront who this woman is head on, mm. warts and all. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. there are some pretty. Um, distasteful things about her. The way she deals with her son sometimes you could yes. argue yeah. isn't perhaps the best way of bringing <laughs> up a child but it, it, in her, in, in Sandra's head it's all for the good of her child and she's fiercely protective over him and I think mm. you know the way Saran uh, you know is so committed to that the slightly um, uh, less pleasant sides of Sandra's character mm. then it means the kind of payoff at the end mm-hmm. is is so richly deserved and so moving i think you know mm. the coming out scene is just it's heartbreaking to watch every night and to yeah. to work with the actors on and to see them develop and take risks and it's you know it's paying paying massive dividends well, it's a brilliant production and I, I could talk to you, you for much longer to hear more about it, but I think people should just go and check it out really. Are there tickets left for the rest of the London Yeah, run? well, yeah. this week I'm really I'm blown away to say we're more or less sold out. Oh, which, okay. You know, for, it's fantastic. But yeah, we, we're running until the 25th of May yep. at the Arts Theatre um, and tickets are available. You know, always check the box office, whatever. Great. But yes, yep. it's selling fast. So selling fast. if you are listening and you want to come and see it, please get online or call the box office because they are selling quickly. Brilliant. Okay, well, congratulations on a fabulous production. Thanks so much for talking to us, Nick. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for your support, Rosie. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Cheerio. Bye. Ta-ra. Bye-bye. That's a track from Christopher Owens there. You're listening to Out in South London on Resonance 104.4 FM with me, Rosie Wilby. And uh, we're going to be hearing in just a second a a feature that Clayton Littlewood has presented for us about Soho, which is, of course, a hub for the gay community. And the community organisation Centred actually organises an LGBT history tour of Soho every Sunday. And Clayton Littlewood, who, of course, you've heard on this programme before, the author of Goodbye to Soho, went on the tour and spoke to its tour guides, Rick Morrison and Barbara Gray. If you cast your mind back to the 1500s, and Soho was outside of the city of London, and actually was just countryside. And in 1533, King Henry VIII turned it into a royal hunting ground. And this is where the name of Soho is meant to come from, which was the hunting cry, as they would say, as in tally-ho. The word Soho conjures up many images, particularly of London's buzzing nightlife. Film, theatre and music all have their place here. Entertainment is key. In fact, all sorts of entertainment. Still the red light burns Where the sleaze and the business meets The district has long been famous for its freedom and with Old Compton Street at its heart, Soho's gay past is one to explore. The organisation Kairos in Soho, now called Centred, offers walking tours dedicated to this past. Tour guide Rick Morrison explains. Well, the tour 
is called um, LGBT History Tour of Soho. So it's looking at the people and places that are of interest from um, a lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender perspective. And the history of Soho goes right back to the late 1600s. And we kind of want to look beyond the sort of old Compton Street and the modern scene and look at the experience of people who've sort of perhaps challenge the norms of gender, identity and sexuality in the past. So the Black Cat Cafe, Quentin Crisp, came to London at the age of 19, arriving at Piccadilly and just realising, wow, there are people just like me here. He used to come along to the Black Cat Cafe with his friends, where he said, I will make up at a time when even on women, eyeshadow was sinful. And from that moment on, my friends were anyone who could put up with the disgrace. My occupation was any job from which I was not given the sack and my playground, any cafe or restaurant from which I was not barred or any street corner from which the police did not move me on. So in terms of coming along to the Black Cat Cafe, he says, day after uneventful day, night after loveless night, we sat in the cafe, buying each other cups of tea, combing each other's hair, and trying on each other's lipsticks. Now, Quentin Chris worked as a nude model, where he was discovered, and he did a radio show where he talked about his life. And he was encouraged to write a book, which was The Naked Civil Servants, and became a film in 1975. His role was played by John Hurt, and it brought both of them into a lot of fame. He's our hero of the day. It takes a man to suffer ignorance and smile. Be yourself, no matter what they say. Quentin Chris moved to New York when he was 72, and Sting dedicated the song An Englishman in New York to him. The tour starts at the Admiral Duncan and goes past Kettner's, which was frequented by Oscar Wilde, and on to the Prince Edward Theatre, where Josephine Baker performed. Rick Morrison again. The tour, I believe, started in 1997 when the organisation Kairos in Soho was relatively young and it did mainly sort of focus on gay men. So I started as a volunteer on the tour in the year 2000 and then since then the other volunteer tour guides sort of one by one dropped away over the years and, and I came to be in the position of being the only tour guide for a while and then some money became available for me to work a one day one day a week post as tour development officer uh, and we started reinventing the tour make it much more representative in terms of gender and race yeah we talk about our next character a woman who was an african-american who was more at home in france a woman who was bisexual but was very famous for all her exploits with men a woman who was born of extreme poverty but became one of the most richest and famous women in the world. And our next character here is Josephine Baker. She had this famous dance, which was called the banana dance, and she had very little on apart from this little string and bananas that went around her hip. She adopted children 
from 10 different editions, which she called her Rainbow Tribe. One of her sons, Jean-Claude, has written her biography, and he talks about the fact that she had a number of famous lovers, some of them were Colette, who was a French writer, and Frida Kahlo, who people may know. I wonder why my baby Rick Morrison again. And then two years ago, we advertised for some new volunteer tour guides and we put them through a training programme that was accredited by the Institute of Tourist Guiding so to make sure we were doing a professional job. The tour is two hours long and highlights are the Trident Studios, where the likes of Elton John and David Bowie cut records, and Queen recorded their first album. On the south of Soho, we hear about Anne Lister, who lived in Yorkshire in the early 19th century. She recorded her lesbian adventures in a code in her diary. Decoded in the 1930s, the diaries reveal that she was very much aware of her orientation and lived it fairly openly. Her story was made into a TV series by the BBC in 2009. Much laughter is sparked by the story about two priests who lived in a brothel. One of them was called John Church. He was the first priest known to have conducted mock gay weddings at molly houses in the 18th century. These molly houses can be seen as the forerunners of gay bars. We know a lot about molly houses actually because of the sort of moral backlash against them and they were raided from, from time to time. In 1725, so uh, a few decades before John Church, an undercover investigator called Samuel Stevens went inside a molly house to see what he could see there. And he said, I found between 40 and 50 men making love, as they called it. They would sit on one another's laps, kissing in a lewd manner and using their hands indecently. Then they would get up, dance and make curtsies and mimic the voices of women. Pray, sir, dear sir, Lord, how can you serve me so? I swear I'll cry out, you're a wicked devil. So there's a lot we can, can recognise there. And, and they often had... Um, what we'd now call drag names, if you like. They called them maiden names at the time. They're sort of a female persona. And, and these are some of the genuine maiden names in 18th century molly houses. Miss Kitten, Pomegranate Molly, Primrose Mary, who was a butcher in real life, Dip Candle Mary, who was a candle maker in real life, Aunt May, and my favourite, Princess Seraphima and the Countess of Chamomile. <laughs> With this selection of characters that are presented on the tour, I asked Rick what he thinks is the most interesting one. Maybe the most fascinating person is the Chevalier Deon near the beginning of the tour, who was a French diplomat who spent much of her life in London, the first half of her life and until her 40s. She lived as a man and the second half of her life uh, she lived as a woman. And this was in the late 1700s and is the only public figure in history before the modern age to transform from, from a man to a woman publicly. Despite the colourful characters who lived in Soho, I missed hearing about Soho's underworld centred around Piccadilly. Piccadilly was the pick-up place for male prostitutes for more than a hundred years. The Criterion, which is still there today, used to be a popular gay bar back in the 19th century. 
I asked Rick why this wasn't included. A lot of it is the time when we were revamping the tour. There was just so much, so we had to be very selective about what we included. We do allude to the early 20th century Piccadilly scene with the uh, Lion's Corner House and a little bit when we talk about Quentin Crisp. We wanted to get as wide a range as possible in, so we didn't want it to be so much a history of gay men's bars, really. I think we wanted to look more at history because I think that's less known, really. We wanted to um, open people's eyes to how long have been people who we can understand as LGBT in the Soho area for um, the whole history of Soho. Yeah, we didn't want to focus too much on the salacious scandalous side of things. I guess that the motivation was to provide a kind of social activity that gave people a bit of perspective um, on their identities. Over the years we've adapted it and improved it and and when we took on the the, the new tour guide to train them two years ago we, we completely rewrote the tour from scratch. One of the new tour guides is Barbara Gray who led the first part of the tour I attended. She tells us how she got involved. I've a strong interest in heritage and history and wanted to be a tour guide for a long time. So when I saw the call for volunteers, I just thought, wow, this is my um, opportunity. So I came along and I was successful and selected as one of the volunteers and undertook the training. So you start off quite naive with these things, thinking, oh, this would be great. But actually, it was quite a lot of hard work, but very, very interesting. And the more research I did, the more interesting the whole thing became and we were just supported all the way along our training and also uh, made to feel quite valued in terms of what we're doing and what we have to offer to the organisation and also to what it is that they're trying to achieve. As I mentioned earlier the tour is organised by Kairos in Soho now called Centred. It's a community development organisation which is dedicated to the LGBT community. It focuses on the arts with heritage, culture, environment and social education as their main themes. Nowadays, an openly gay life can be lived in London, something the younger ones seem to take for granted. So what kind of audiences does the tour attract? Older ones who are aware of the struggle they went through or younger ones who have an interest in the LGBT past? I'm not sure. We do tend to get quite a, a, a wide age range, actually, and, and we do often, we do private tours, and we often have study groups. We've had study groups from universities in the United States, and we have youth groups, maybe visiting London and, and want something to do on, on a day out. So, so, so we do get quite an age range, uh, and I think on, on the regular Sunday tour, we get the full spectrum, really. It's a very informative tour through Soho, but the stress clearly lies on LGBT history. Although it would have been nice to learn more about the darker side and the danger the LGBT community was exposed to up to the 1970s. And for example, why and when Old Compton Street became the heart of the community? A connection to the more recent past and the present day would have complemented the historical picture of Soho. But for now, on this Sunday walking tour, it's all about uncovering Soho's lesser-known gay past. In the land where horses born with eagle wings and honeybees have lost their stings, they're singing forever.
Well, that was our LGBT history tour of Soho feature by the wonderful Clayton Littlewood. His book, Goodbye to Soho, will be out as an audiobook next month and you can find out more should you want to go on one of the LGBT history walks now that the weather is getting better. You can find out all about that at www.centred.org. UK. Well, finally, I get a chance to talk to my live guests in the studio who've been waiting very patiently while well, we've been talking to people on the phone and playing out features of people walking around Soho. And I'm joined by Alana Avery um, from an organisation called On Road Media, who are basically addressing trans representation in the media by enlisting a series of champions, people like John Slo- Snow from Channel 4 News, I've seen, have been mentioned. Hi, Alana. Hi, Rosie. Because it, um, it was going to be a colleague of yours, Natalie who was going to be with us um, can't be with us but thank you for joining us and you've also brought with you um, two people who've been working with you on a project called All About Trans Um, so we have Hel Gurney performance poet activist writer hi Hel Hi. Great to see you. And also Jamie Palace. Hi. Who, um, you had an interesting project I was looking up um, earlier on about representation of trans male identity, the test shot. That's right. Um, so well, there's all kinds of interesting things to find out about, um, about what you all do. But um, I'll start with you, Alana. Just, just tell us a bit about On Road Media and this project all about trans. Um, well, On Road, we have different projects with different communities. We generally work with misrepresented misunderstood communities Um, so the one particularly we have with the trans community we've been working with with them for about two years Um, so it started as transmedia action and we work with the closely with the trans community and media professionals to try and improve the portrayal and understanding of the trans community in the media Mm -hmm. Um, so at the moment we're in the middle of all about trans which is a really exciting project where we're delivering interactions um, between people in the media journalists presenters Mm -hmm. uh, editors and young trans people um and it's a it's a uh, it's sort of phase two of transmedia action but it's um we've seen some exciting outcomes from from transmedia action so we've started to to we've started with these interactions that will take place from april to july um where we're bringing people together and each one is tailored specifically to the to the media to the person in the in the media so if the if the journalist If the journalist has particular interests um, or hobbies, we're bringing them together with trans volunteers who may have similar interests. Um, And we're taking them on... You're going to things like exhibitions and cultural events. Sort of anything adventurous or an espresso around the corner from their work. Um, So one idea where we're taking executives from BBC to the aquarium at some stage in April. Um, So that's it can be anything uh, from a helicopter ride, which we're sort of negotiating, to... Um, a dinner in their favourite restaurant. So we've got a few things lined up. We're delivering 20 altogether, but we have over a third of those confirmed at the moment. And Um, have have these started happening or are these all So they'll start from the end of April. Right. Um, And we're working closely with BBC. It's it's BBC-supported project ah, as well as Esme Fairbairn great. Foundation. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've worked closely with the BBC and Channel 4 yep. for the last two years and with these media professionals now we're branching out and speaking to people in broadsheet newspapers gossip magazines um, <laughs> nice. tabloid newspapers and comedians as well um, oh, okay. and we have a really substantial, really fantastic pool of volunteers that we've worked with for a while. Great. And Which so comedians are you talking to? 
Um, we're keeping names under the ah, hat for the okay. moment. Oh, um, right. We don't have Jon Snow, unfortunately, but we oh, do have did I, people in Channel 4. I did read that 4. somewhere, or somebody... I think my partner who met Natalie... Maybe said it came that up. Natalie had mentioned Jon Snow, or... Ah, OK. We do, have, we do have people from Channel 4 confirmed. Ah, OK. But we're keeping the names quiet until the day ah, okay. of the interaction. Right. So, but, um, yeah, they'll all be published on our website. But it's really about moving the media professional and about making connections that can lead to better portrayal and better yeah. understanding. A sort of a personal connection, which is always stronger than... Exactly. Uh, sort of more dry kind of... Yeah, we're not about uh, selling approach. or lecturing or yeah. talking to somebody about terminology. It's it's really about getting them to meet somebody like Jamie or somebody like Hell and creating that space that's comfortable and exciting and interesting and can then lead to a natural connection, a human connection. Okay, so tell us a bit about how specifically Jamie and Hell have been involved. Um, <clears throat> Jamie worked with us on phase one, so he came to workshops that we ran in the BBC and Channel 4, which had a more of a formal slant. Um, he's fantastic on social media and runs a brilliant blog um, called The Test Shot. But yeah. we, we ran workshops... Um, with different journalists in the BBC and, and so we've seen outcomes such as the Trans Comedy Award which is a scriptwriter's oh, yes. award. yes, Claire Parker so, was yes, involved um, exactly. with that and was that one of your events? So that yeah. was an idea that was developed at TransCamp actually that ah, happened in 2012. Okay. So she's flown ahead with that with the BBC Writers Room yep. um, and Jamie helped us out on TransCamp and during the workshops and I think they're going to announce the winners at the end of May, actually. So there's there's okay. over 300 scripts there, which is really exciting. Oh, wow. Um, and Hell's just started with us, um, just assisting and and working with us. So between the two of them, Jamie will actually be facilitating some of um, our upcoming interactions, so in an informal way. Yeah, OK. But, um, well, well, Jamie, tell us a bit about, about how the experience has been so far for you. I think it's been amazing. It's... It's really great to see people who have kind of either little idea of what trans means or or sort of cautious about discussing the issues come together in a kind of open forum and they mm. can sort of voice their concerns, they can kind of freely explain what they don't understand and it's generally been a really good learning experience for the professionals who've come mm. to the workshops, I'd say. Yeah. And tell us a bit about the test shot as well, because I, I had a quick look at it mm. this afternoon. It looked really interesting. Yeah, so the test shot is an online visual project, which yeah. is basically a photography blog, and we take pictures of trans men, FDMs, and masculine genderqueer people in their mm -hmm. favourite outfits. Ah. And kind of just in their everyday lives around London, in their houses, and they write... Well, they answer a few questions about what their clothes mean to them. Great. So it's basically a different way of approaching the subject of being trans and a different way of approaching identity. Yeah. Style. Um, I think Open Barbers were on there. Yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. friends with Felix and Grey who yeah, run Open Yeah, Barbers. They've, they've been on the show gosh, a while ago now. Yeah. Um, so, yes. And Hell, um, so you've ju only just got involved... Um, but you, it's, again, from your website, it looked like you do a lot of um, interesting things, performance, writing, blogging. Yeah. Um, what, how, how did you end up getting involved with this project? Uh, well, uh, I, I, uh, I've been a sort of a fan of uh, trans media action for a while since I encountered them at the Trans Community Conference. Um, and when I saw an internship was going, I just kind of leapt on it mm. because I this this is the kind of stuff that that I do as part of my life anyway. So the idea of doing it sort of 
in an organized way and being able to talk to people who I wouldn't otherwise have access to and to kind of just just to kind of yeah to to keep on doing this and to do it sort of within a structure is is really awesome because you're um the trans rep on the NUS women's committee so yeah, what yeah. does that entail uh, so um, I was elected by uh, Trans Caucus um, two years ago. Um, and are you still a student now? Then I've just graduated. Just graduated. I've right. just finished my master's degree. Okay. Um, and it's basically um, it, it's the, the role is kind of pretty much what you make of it. But um, it's mm. it's included uh, writing a briefing about tackling transphobia within feminism. Yes. Um, well, yes, I think we could. <laughs> have quite a discussion about that mm. yes uh and sort of um basically making sure that uh, that trans people and trans issues are kind of understood within the context of gender politics so one of the things i'm proudest of uh in my work with the women's campaign is sort of expanding the definition of who it actually covers okay um so previously there wasn't any um there wasn't a definition of who could be a member of the campaign. Um, and I've kind of made sure that it's open not just to people who are cis women, but to trans women and uh, specifically to people who might have more complicated gender identities but experience mm -hmm. oppression as women. So genderqueer people see. like myself. Yep. yep. Um, well, let's talk a bit about that thorny issue of, of the um, <laughs> certain sort of hot debates there have been between some, some high-profile feminists and, and comments about about the trans community. Um, what, yeah. you know, what are your feelings about that? There does seem to be this difficulty, doesn't there, really, um, where, you know, that there is a lot of conflict there, I think. Yeah, although I, th I think that um, the dominant media narrative is actually one that's kind of quite outdated in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, th I think that um, the most high-profile feminists aren't necessarily the ones who speak sort of for what's actually going on in the grassroots at the moment. Mm. Most of the feminists I know are incredibly trans-positive. Um, yes, and I feel like the, yeah. the discourse that kind of has been happening recently of feminists versus transsexuals is actually really reductive and really disingenuous. Uh -huh. yeah. um, because the fight for gender equality and the fight for sort of trans equality, the fight for... Uh, gay and bi equality. It's it's all fighting against the same system, you know, kind of compulsory heterosexuality and patriarchy and stuff. And I think most feminist activists these days, certainly most of the ones that are in my circles, kind of understand that we're all on the same side. Mm. Um, and I, I think that the uh, the debate around um, recent sort of high profile uh, feminist vilification of trans people has been really sort of misrepresentative of the wider feminist movement, I'd mm. say. Yes, no, I think so. Um, and tell us, I mean, it's interesting though, isn't it? I mean, you sort of say you're genderqueer. We've had Tian Lester on um, as well. Um, but I think it's very difficult, isn't it, when our language is so binary? How do you navigate that? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, and it's certainly true that as a genderqueer person, I sometimes feel completely culturally illegible. But um, one of the things <laughs> that I've been... Uh, working on sort of in my capacity as an academic as well as kind of on a personal interest level is sort of looking at like the the history of sort of genderqueer and gender sort of non-normativity because actually there you know while, while, while there is very much a sort of in, a socially entrenched gender binary 
um, there pretty much have always been spaces of resistance um, yeah. and sort of spaces of that people have kind of carved out for themselves in a way that they can exist sort of beyond or between or outside that binary. And I mean, like, hmm. um, sort of back in the Renaissance, there was there was Mary Frith, who was a um, she she uh, she sort of identified as female, sort of within the construct of the time. But she was famously like a masculine woman who wore trousers and mm. sort of smoked a pipe, like long before that was a kind which was of, very transgressive then. Yeah, probably, incredibly yeah. because um, yeah. because like there were so many laws about what clothing you could wear. Mm. Um, and uh, I've, I've uh, been writing recently about um, sort of trans masculinity in the nineteenth century and the way that this has until relatively recently been sort of interpreted as lesbianism, but actually it's not just about sort of codifying sexual attraction to women through a masculine presentation. It's actually about a sort of a new gendered space that people are kind of creating for themselves. And I, I think just genderqueer people or people who have characteristics which we would now describe as genderqueer have been in existence for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes, right. Um, and I'm going to be talking about this uh, with slightly more academic rigour at um, an upcoming conference in Warwick. Oh, um, is that something that the public can go to, or is it a private? Oh yeah, it's yeah. um, it's it's open access. Okay. Um, it's going to be streamed online, and oh. um, people will be able to ask questions um, through the internet. Hopefully, um, if you go to mindtheresearchgap.wordpress.com, then you can uh, find details about it and I'm also co-running um, a performance event in the evening um, showcasing genderqueer artists. Um, oh who's going to be on at that? Uh, well we'll have CN Lester. Great, um, fantastic. I will be doing uh, some of my poetry, um, Kat Gupta will be doing uh, performance art um, and we have uh, sort of a trans feminist band uh, called Bad News Everyone. Um, mm. And this is part of another one of my side projects called The Cutlery Drawer, which is basically a kind of queer feminist fundraising label. Um, we sort of raise money for people like Gendered Intelligence and Rape oh, Crisis yes. Centres. Yeah. And it's all about kind Brilliant. of creating a performance space where, yeah, sort of LGBT and feminist artists can kind of... Mm. like express themselves and also sort of talk about the issues that matter to them. Mm. And you just mentioned the the LGBT label and I'm, I'm mm. sort of quite interested in whether that label is a bit outdated now um, because we sort of started adding on lots of letters to that Yeah, and now a lot of people who are saying that they're genderqueer and, and people who are gay and lesbian are perhaps using the word queer perhaps to mean mm. something alternative to that very heteronormative existence. Yeah, well, I, mean, I don't know what you think about labels like that. I absolutely identify with the label queer but I think mm. it's important to realise that not everyone who is non-heterosexual and non-cis kind of uses those words about themselves. Mm. But I mean I, I personally think that queer is a very valuable term mm. um, but I mean it, it, does, it does kind of have a certain sense of like resistance and politics about it that not necessarily everyone outside the sort of heteronormative uh, world would identify with but I, I mean, you mean because it has been used as, as an insult or just yeah and, and, and also yeah. there are some people who don't identify with queer politics for whatever reason but yeah. yeah also there are people who just don't want to reclaim something because it's been that hurtful to them yeah. and i think that's fair enough yeah. i mean as a relatively young person i've only encountered the word queer used as a slur at me once ever right yeah um so for me it's it's always held this kind of very positive reclamatory kind of vibe that yes but yeah. i totally understand that 
for many other people it wouldn't. It's got much more loaded kind of yeah. painful memories. But then I think gay is probably used as more of an insulting word now by yeah. kids, isn't it? You know, yeah. I wonder if that will almost take on that painful significance in future. I, I've no idea. Well, I know. mean, that that would be something very interesting to follow. I mean, when I've worked with primary schools before, I um, I have picked kids up on using it. And it, it is very strange the way it kind of gets thrown around in this sort of scattergun kind of way. But they don't really they don't necessarily always understand what they're saying but I mean I think it definitely links into this kind of this vilification of or not perhaps not vilification but this mm. kind of disgust for femininity the kind of the idea that like that sort of gay and sissy boy are kind of yeah. things you throw at sort of male assigned children who aren't necessarily behaving in a way that you can sort of is considered like appropriately masculine or whatever. Yeah. Jamie do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> you said you're horrified that I decided to <laughs> turn to you and speak to you um, have you have you had sort of words like queer or gay used to, uh, as an insult to you or sissy or anything like that or um... not really I, for some reason I ha- I think like the the well previously homophobia and like any kind of prejudice that I've experienced for being kind of gender transgressive has been kind of more subtle than that I'd say okay yes. And is that, mm. is, is that in a way worse if it's more sort of under the surface, you can't quite pinpoint what someone has done? Yeah, I guess it just comes from years of getting messages about, you know, being transgender or being queer that you kind of um, internalise and then it takes a sort of psychological effect, which isn't as obvious as some kind of mm. insult. Mm. No. Yes, it's it's kind of harder yeah. to deal with. Um, Hell, I was, I was also interested as well. I mean, we, we have to wrap up in just a couple of minutes, but um, there there are trans people that I've spoken to who I think do want to cling on to an idea of a binary because mm-hmm. I think it's been so difficult for them to traverse that very difficult kind of binary mm-hmm. chasm um, over to the opposite gender. So mm. I think for them it's quite difficult that people might choose to reject gender all, altogether. Mm. Um, well, I don't know what you think about that. Well, I, don't, I wouldn't say that I reject gender altogether okay. because I think it obviously... It, it's something that exists in the world and it's very hard to, to kind of say that, you know, I am going to live a life completely uninfluenced by gender mm-hmm. because it's it's something that's so very culturally uh, pervasive. Yeah. But, I mean, I suppose I'd say to those people, someone else's gender identity never invalidates yours. You know, you can not. feel no, entirely no. that you're a woman or that you're a man, but that doesn't mean that other people do. Um, I suppose that's kind of simplistic, but... Um, but yeah, every, every, everyone has a different understanding um, of, of, of themselves. Everyone experiences themselves in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think that considering yourself to be neither male nor female or to be both or sort of something else entirely... Um, it doesn't I, negate yeah, it, the it people doesn't, who It doesn't do invalidate the yeah. identities of yeah. other people who do feel themselves very strongly to be one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Alana, in, in your sort of work, um, what, what, has, what have you come across in terms of labels and how what labels people feel comfortable with or what labels are perhaps being held around as insults, etc.? Um, I think there lies a sort of um, stereotype when it comes to trans community, um, which is often it's it's highlighted with different age groups or different diverse groups coming together and talking and and comes the realization like you said how that each person is completely different and they have a unique experience and a different yeah. identity um so although in our work we're not about um lecturing and talking about terminology that should or should not be used 
Um, but it is important to 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 stress that people were preferred to be referred to as a with a certain pronoun, or mm-hmm. if they're representing themselves as that person, then it's it, appreciated that way. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there there can be. Um, in the media, there can be a sort of a, a stigma around that and a, a, an outlook that is based on a stereotype. Um, mm. So kind of combating that, it's it's about creating that that space that you can have that discussion to realise that each person is different and comes from a completely different background. Mm. And it's OK to ask. It's OK yeah. to say, how should I refer to yeah. you? Uh, you know, yeah. I, I'm not quite sure what to say here. Um, is it OK? And there's nothing wrong with that as far as we've come across. I think people get anxious I think about, ask, about having to th- ask. There is. That really yeah. does exist. Yes. Um, and it's difficult. It's, you know, you don't want to insult somebody. Of course not, um, no. But often making the assumption or that they are insulting. one thing or the other. Yeah. And it's a, it's a spectrum as well. I mean, yeah. we've, we've had interesting sessions. I won't go into too much, but with gendered intelligence, um, where we're working with, with young people, young trans people. And it's it's about gender is quite fluid, as from yeah. what we've yeah. learned. Yeah. There's a spectrum. It's not binary. It's not necessarily male or female. It can be anywhere along that. Um, and that's I mean, we're learning a lot from the young generation. Um, mm. So it's quite interesting then to, to bring them together with somebody from an older generation um, who is who is cis or who is who is not trans yep. and to, to put that across that I am this, this is what I am. Um, so we're learning as well. It's, it's, um, yeah. it's, it's well, I think, I think we are all learning, aren't we? So <laughs> thank you so much, all three of you, for thank coming you. on thank to you. Thanks a lot, yeah. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.
This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.